Little did I think six years ago that I would be standing here uh, with you guys, and it is a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, Deb said that there's a bit of electricity in the room. I think it's probably because you got the extra hour of sleep. <laughs> when it, uh, about a year ago, I was um, on Sunday mornings, I meet with a group of kids when I was at Eustick, and we met at 7.45 to pray, and daylight savings came around, and I didn't change my clock, and I came to the church, and I'm waiting there, and nobody shows up. I'm like, these stinking kids. You've got to be kidding me. And so I, wait, I thought, well, I'll wait for 15 minutes. Maybe one will show up, and, and they didn't show up. So I decided, okay, I'm just going to go down to the main sanctuary, go with the worship team, and I go downstairs, and nobody's there. And I'm thinking, okay, I've got something wrong here. Laura Bottomer really wanted me to share that story with you because she showed up an hour early this morning. And uh, so she got the good laugh this morning. A couple things I feel like I need to say uh, before we head into uh, the Word of God is uh, I feel sorry for anybody from the state of Michigan who is mourning the loss of the Detroit Tigers, and I will eat humble pie and say congratulations to those St. Louis fans. Um, If you don't know about, I think you need to know a little bit about me. Um, My father, when... uh, in 1968, went into with a, a group of about 12 men, and they bought season tickets to the Cincinnati Reds games. I, I grew up in Cincinnati, and uh, the seats that we sat in were front row, right behind home plate. And so that's how I grew up uh, in Cincinnati. Is going to Cincinnati Reds games. I'm excited about baseball. I was discipled in the aspect of watching sports, <laughs> not playing sports, but watching sports. So uh, if I get excited about sports, it's because I've watched them, not actually participated in them. So, you know, the church uh, is an amazing phenomenon, and uh, we do some things to try to communicate to the world around us. And I don't know if you've driven by a church and they had these reader boards out front, uh, but sometimes when they, we, they put some saying on these reader boards that, I'm not quite sure. I mean, they're cute sayings, but is this really what we want to communicate to the world? Uh, One sign said, to prevent sin burn, use sunscreen, S-O-N. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Just a little footnote, if I don't do well today, you can thank Rod and Jackson because they discipled me in this area. (laughs) If I do do well, flowers and uh, food is always welcome. Another thing that is written on the, uh, some of the reader boards is uh, God answers knee mail, K-N-E-E. Uh, another thing would say, uh, another one that was uh, out there said, Walmart is not the only saving place. <laughs> and uh, one more would be, welcome to our C-H blank C-H. What's missing? You are... You know, as we think about what do we really want to communicate as a church, what are we trying to communicate? What is the church about? Um, Is it about attendance? Is it about showing up on a Sunday morning? Or is there more to church than silly sayings and uh, just attending things? Uh, Often we use the word church to refer to a denomination such as the Presbyterians or the Methodists or the Baptists. 
Sometimes we refer to the church as a local congregation, the church down the street or on the corner. Sometimes we refer to the church as a building. Uh, They're building a new church. Or that's the church, and we point to that. Sometimes we misunderstand this word church. And I think we need to go back to the Word of God. We need to kind of spend some time in the Word to figure out what does God mean when He uses the word church. Jesus says in Matthew, He says that upon this rock I will build my church. And Jesus wants us to know a little bit about that building this morning. So let's pray. Father, as we open up Your Word, as we open up our hearts and our minds, our attitudes, our emotions to You, we lay them at Your feet. We ask that You would remove any distractions from us this morning in order that we may hear You speak. Would You fill me with Your Spirit? Empower me to say the things that are true of You. And if anything is said this morning that is not true, that You would remove that. And then that would not be a stumbling block. But that we would continue to seek after You, the true builder of the church. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have your Bible, please open up to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Forgot something. Matthew 16, 13 through 20 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. A little bit before this, uh, Jesus is encountering the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And basically they want a sign. They say, Jesus, give us a sign so that we can know who you really are. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. And then he takes the disciples and they go on this little pilgrimage and they realize that they don't have any bread with them. And Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they get confused because they think, is he talking about bread? And he says, no, I'm talking about the teaching of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And we get to this section in Matthew chapter 16 where he actually takes his disciples on a retreat. It's actually a mountaintop. He takes them away 
They go about uh, 25 miles northeast of Galilee, and he gets alone with them. And he wants to have some personal time because he is about, he is about ready to enter into the suffering servant upon the cross. He's about ready to say, I'm heading toward the cross. And he's wanting to get his disciples prepared for this event. And in verse 13 it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea and Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? When they walk into this area, the Greek god Pan is worshipped. There's a temple to this god. So as they're walking toward this area, they see this temple. Not only do they see that, but the name of the city is Caesarea, Philippi. It's the worshiping of Caesar. They name these towns this way because they want to honor their god, Caesar. And so there's multiple gods that are, are worshipped in this area, and Jesus takes the guys up on this mountainside, and he says, as he's probably looking around as they see different things, guys, as you've listened, as you've interacted, as you've heard people talk, who do they say the Son of Man is? It's an interesting question. I don't think Jesus was really wondering what the people were thinking. Uh, As we know about Christ, he knew things supernaturally. He didn't uh, have to be told things. But I believe he asked the question to move the guys towards this proclamation that, that Peter is going to make. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And it's interesting. How have the people responded to the miracles of Jesus? How have people responded to the person of Jesus? How have people watched him and looked at him? And how have people made observation and conclusions about this man? And the disciples answer in verse 14, they say, some say you're John the Baptist. The belief that is that he came back from the dead and John the Baptist is now filling the body of Jesus and the forerunner of the Christ. Others say Elijah, because in the Jewish times, the Jews would set a plate at the table and hope that Elijah would come back. Another forerunner of the Messiah, of the Christ. So maybe he's Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, because of Jesus' heart and passion for the people. And Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He was the one that had so much heart for the people of God. And Jesus had that too. Or one of the prophets. You know, the amazing thing about this section is that people were very confused about who Jesus was. And isn't that true today? There's still a lot of confusion this very day of who is Jesus? Is he a good man? Is he moral? Is he truth? Is he just a man? Or is he more than that? So Jesus asked this question to probe them to the next question, which is the question that each one of us has to answer in verse 15. But he says to them, but who do you, plural, who do you guys, after you've spent this time with me, after you've seen me calm the waters as I walked out on it and we were on the boat, as you've seen me heal people, as you've seen me move into people's lives, Who do you say I am? And what a great question. 
I think there's times when I lay on my bed at night and I really think about that question and I go, who do I really believe Jesus is? I know I've made that decision for him. I know I've accepted him in my heart, but I see this tension between the way I live my life and the way I believe about Jesus. Who do you say that I am? The amazing thing is that he's not asking individuals, he's asking the group. And Simon Peter, who is uh, a great character, answers in verse 16. And I almost want to think that he actually shouts this out. I, I almost want to think that he just, something just clicks in his head and he goes, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Something about Peter's character just makes me think about that. He's just kind of instantaneously at times saying things and doing things. You are the Christ. Peter gets it. Now, this isn't the first time that they've said this about Jesus. If you remember back in the beginning of the book of John, uh, Peter's brother comes to him and says, Hey, come with us. We believe we have found the Messiah, the Christ. And at other times in the book of Matthew, it is talked about Jesus being the Christ. But I believe at this point in time in the book of Matthew, the curtain is pulled back to this group of men and they understand a bit more of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And he's not, ju- not just the Christ, but he puts this little tagline on it, the Son of the living God. It's not the, it's not the Son of a God, but it's the Son of the living God, the one true God, the, the God of the Israelites, the God that they have followed, the living God that has been true from the very beginning and is now. That's who you are. And all of a sudden, I think in their minds, they start to think, what's going to happen? What's going to happen now that we are actually with the Christ? Before, sometimes when they've had an emotional experience with Jesus, they've said, get away. They said, we're not worthy. But at this point in time, Peter proclaims he is the Christ. And I believe Jesus, in verse 17, looks at him with eyes of compassion and he said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that little phrase, blessed are you, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus uses that phrase over and over again in the Beatitudes, blessed are you, blessed are you. And he looks at, G- and looks at Peter and he says, you are so blessed. And it's not because of something that Peter did. It's not because Peter had it all together. It's not because Peter was an intellectual and he calculated all the things that Jesus was doing, was able to put things together and and make a statement like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But it's blessed are you because God, the Father, has done something in you. And he calls him Simon Barjona because Peter called Jesus the Son of God. He reverses that and says, yeah, I'm the Son of God, and you're the Son of Jonah, kind of a connection. And you're blessed because my Father, who is in heaven, has opened up your eyes and opened up your heart and revealed to you this magnificent truth. And that little statement, my Father, who is in heaven, if you remember the prayer when the disciples say, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. He says, pray like this. Our Father, 
who is in heaven. And the amazing thing about a relationship with the living God is what we would call that it's God-revealing. I do not believe that anybody comes to a relationship with God without God first revealing to them supernaturally that He is God. You see, the Peter and the disciples saw some amazing spectacles as they walked with Christ, but they didn't walk away going, He is the Christ. It wasn't until that revealing happened. So we start to understand that as the church, how does the church proclaim God? It's always God revealing. And it's resting in this revelation that He is actually moving in the world. He is moving in the lives of people to reveal Himself to all men. The amazing thing about this revelation is that it is available to all people but not all people respond to it. As we know, as you probably have friends or family that just say, I don't want to have any of that. It's a nice thing, he's a nice guy, and he probably does nice things for people, but I, I just don't want that to be part of my, my life. Blessed are you, Simon, or Jonah, because God has revealed this to you. And not only are you blessed, but in verse 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now if I would have been smart a couple weeks ago when they asked me to come up here and teach, I probably would have picked a different passage because this section of Matthew chapter 16 gets a bit confusing. Jesus says you are Simon Barjona, Simon's son of John, and now I'm changing your name to Peter the Rock. And we've seen that happen before in the New Testament where he takes Saul and changes his name to Paul. And it's really this idea of a new identity, a new person, a new creation, if you will, that, that God is moving in the life of Peter and saying, I'm changing you. You are Peter. It's not you will be Peter, it's, or you might be Peter, but you are Peter, Christ claiming that right now. And upon this rock I will build my church. And this is where it gets confusing. Upon this rock I will build my church. Well, Jesus, what rock are you talking about? Are you talking about that you're going to build your church on Peter, which there's beliefs that Peter is the first pope of the church, and there's a whole system of beliefs based upon Peter, because he's the rock. Or... Is this rock the statement that Peter just said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Could be that. Uh, And there's other opinions out there of what it could be. Now, a couple things that we have to do in this passage that we have to go through the whole Scriptures and say, what do we understand about people in the Word of God? Is that they're equal. Never do we find anybody being picked out and said, okay, you are so special, so different, and so significant, other than Jesus Christ himself, there's nobody that is picked out in that way and uplifted. So I don't think we can go to this passage and say that Peter is um, picked specifically to be the first pope. But kind of what I believe about this passage, and you can disagree with me, is that I believe Jesus is being relational. 
He says, you're Peter, I'm making you into something different, and I'm going to use you upon this rock. I believe he's referring back to Peter, but not in a sense of anything higher than just God uses people. God chooses to use people to build his church day in and day out. Nothing more, nothing less. Upon you, Peter, something is going to happen. And if we look to Acts, we find that when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks, 3,000 people come into the church. And we also find out later on that 2,000 people come into the church. And so the, I believe there's a sense that Jesus is speaking in, to Peter's life saying, I am going to do something significant with you. But I think this passage is also more built upon whose church is it? It's not Peter's church. Jesus says, I will build my church. Whose church is this? This assembly right here. It's Christ's church. This isn't my church, or Rod's church, or Jackson's church, or Howard's church. I mean, personally, we may say, yeah, that's my church that I belong to, but this is really Christ's church. And as we look around the different churches in the valley, they are Christ's church, and he is building his church. God reveals to people's hearts the need for him. And Jesus said, from that revealing, I will build. I will be active in building my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Another strange passage. Basically, I believe it to say, nothing is going to stop the church. Nothing's going to stop it. Whether you take this end of the passage and you believe that it's actually satanic powers that, that he's talking about, could be. Whether you actually believe that it's death that he's talking about, it could be. But I believe the, the interpretation is, nothing's going to stop the church. Nothing supernaturally, and no man is going to stop the church. I love it in Philippians when Paul is talking and he says, uh, it gets this uh, note that people are preaching Christ out of wrong ambitions. And Paul says, is Christ being preached? Let him go ahead. Because nothing can stop the church. God revealing, Christ building. And in verse 19, it comes down to really our responsibility. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall, be, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's kind of like Jesus is giving Peter the keys to the car. He's not the maker of the car. He's not the designer of the car. He's not going to tell the car how to run. He's not going to make sure that he is the authority over the car. He's been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven to be responsible. And what is this responsibility that, that Jesus is giving Peter is that you shall bind things on earth that have been bound in heaven and you shall loose things on earth that have been loosed in heaven. And I believe he says this specifically to refer back to the warning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the religious leaders at the time and they were binding things, on earth, uh, binding things up on earth that were not necessarily bound in heaven. And they were loosening things up on earth that were not necessarily loosed up in heaven. Or you could use the word permit or not permit. 
And I believe what he's saying to Peter here is that you are going to have great responsibility to proclaim what is true to the people. You shall have the keys to heaven and you will let people in to the kingdom. You will proclaim to them the truths of what is actually in the kingdom of heaven. And I believe that's kind of where we get our responsibility. God revealing, Christ building. But He does give us the keys to be part of building up His kingdom, to be loosening and binding people, to free them from bondage of sin, to bring them to the hope of Christ. Our responsibility is not just to attend a place, but as Jesus says in Matthew 28, is to make disciples. I will give you the keys, and you'll be active in this building process. You will be the one who has responsibility. What does that mean to us? As I thought about this, what is our responsibility as the church? And a couple weeks ago, David Roper taught on spending time with the Lord. And as the body, it is our responsibility to spend time with Him so that we know what is bound and what is loosed. It is our responsibility that we know what is true and what is not true. We know that there are churches that proclaim things that are not true. And we want to take seriously this responsibility of proclaiming what is true. Last week, uh, Jackson taught on the responsibility of bearing the burden for ministry and working with one another in ministry. And as we think about the church, it really is about one another coming together and building the kingdom. And what is the kingdom about? Well, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. It's about helping people be redeemed from this bondage of sin and slavery. It's about moving into people's lives and saying, God loves you. And this really came home last night when I was laying in bed around 2 o'clock in the morning and the neighbor's dog had been barking for about two hours. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I could either take some steak out of the freezer and lace it with some uh, something, <laughs> antifreeze or something like that and toss it over the fence and let them lick on it and that would stop. I thought I could go bang on their door and tell them how horrible, what a horrible dog owner they are. But then God said to me, but you're a representative of the church. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that God actually told me what to do, but what I thought about is that how have I been to these neighbors a representative of the church? Do I only go over there when their dog's a pest? Do I only speak to people when they're a pain? Or do I say, you know what, Lord, I want to be used by you and your kingdom to release people 
for ministry. And it really convicted me to say, you know what, Lord, I have not entered into that family next door. And maybe I need to start thinking about that a little more. The question is for you, what are you doing in the church? Some of you are here and you've come to church, but you're not part of the church. You like the church, you like the benefits of the church, but you have not made that personal decision to say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you need to seriously consider what you think about Christ. Some of you are here that you've made this decision for Christ and you're attenders. You like to attend. And I want to challenge you this morning that Jesus didn't die so that you could come and hang out on a Sunday morning. Jesus came to die to release you from the bondage of sin in order so that you could move into real relationships with people and help them grow in the relationship with Christ. And then it comes down to, I believe, is this area of discipleship. Where Jesus took the 12 guys away and went on a retreat. His whole life was about these 12 men, pouring his life into these 12 men so that when he left, they would continue on. The question I think you need to ask yourself is who are you pouring your life into? Some of you may say, well, I'm not qualified, I don't know what to do, or maybe I just don't have the guts to do it, or I just am not worthy. Maybe my sin is kind of keeping me from that. But... uh, Again, I don't think God is discriminating. I think he says all people can do it, and it's a blessing. Charles Spurgeon said, Oh, what shall measure, oh, who shall measure the heights of the Savior's all-sufficiency? First, tell how high is sin, and then remember that at Noah's flood, at Noah's flood prevailed over the tops of the earth's mountain. So the flood of Christ's redemption prevails over the tops of the mountains of our sin. God revealing, Christ building, but you and I have a responsibility to enter into this church. And in verse 20, he ends by warning his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was the Christ. Basically, it's entrusting God's plan into our lives. And Jesus said, don't, go to, don't get ahead of me. Let's trust in the plan of the Father. So as you think about the church... Is it just a bunch of signs? Do we want to put a sign out front that says, Prevent Truth Decay? Brush up on your Bible? (laughs) I hope not. I think we want to put out a sign that says, The Lord loves you and desires you so much. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your presence. We love you and we praise you because you are the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.